Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for Joe's good words and thank you, God, that you gave us the opportunity to observe what's happening in a completely different part of the world. And Father, thank you that we can go there and worship you and be encouraged and then return back home and do the same. Father, I thank you that this church is still here and still alive and well. God, I thank you that last week in our absence there was worship to you here and this Sunday there's worship to you here. God, I thank you for these people that are the body of Christ. And Father, I pray that today we would worship you. Lord, we look back to your word, Mark chapter 12. We ask your blessing upon it. Lord, increase our faith. Make our hearts believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, turn the Bible to Mark chapter 12. We're gonna pick up right where we left off. I wanna thank Josh Womble for preaching last Sunday in my absence. In my absence, I was able to listen to his message online. I loved it. Thank you so much, Josh, for that. It's a blessing for our church to have so many people that uh, are gifted in preaching, and it's a blessing for us to be able to uh, continue on in the same way as we have. We're in the Gospel of Mark. We've been going through it now for a long time, and we pick, we, we're going to pick up right where we left off. That's where we were when I left, and, and Josh Womble kept it going, and we'll start back now right where he left off at chapter 12, verse 28. Before we do, though, I, I want to say to you how much I missed you all. It's... Um, It's interesting to travel, right? You've been on vacation before. I don't know if you've ever traveled out of the country, but you've been on vacation. And when it's time to leave, you can't wait to leave. You're so excited to go, and you can't wait, you can't wait. You're counting down the days, and then you leave, and you're enjoying it, and you can't wait to go do things and go outside and see and have some fun. But before long, you start to miss home. And it's interesting how that happens. Leading up to it, you can't wait to go, after a few days or a week, you can't wait to get back. And uh, that's what happened in my heart. Now, y'all can tell that my wife is not here, and so I've not seen my wife and kids now in quite a long time. And I keep remembering that in Genesis 2, God said it's not good for man to be alone. I'm about as sad last night and today as I've ever been. Slept with the TV on, the lights on, didn't know what to do last night. But not only my family, you all. And I, I really want to, to share that, that we, I feel like we have something special going on in the sense that, that I feel like we are a true church, a true family of God. Everything I did in Ecuador, I was thinking about you all. I got to preach uh, several times there at several different churches. And every time, I, I, I loved to stand up and I told them about you all. I don't know if they know where Louisville, Kentucky is, some of them. If they don't know where Louisville is, then you know they don't know where Fairdale is. Uh, But I told them about you all, and I told them that we're a real church that loves the Lord, and that y'all had sent me and us, and we greeted them. But I'm happy to be back, because I feel a real sense in that God has called me to be your pastor. I care for you all. I think about you all. I was praying for you all there, and now I'm happy to be back. Thank you all for sending us, and thank you for sending me, and I thank God more that we're here together. In many ways, I feel like God's got a lot of work to do in us. 
And God's got a lot of work to do in, in me, and God's got a lot of work to do in, in our community. But we know that, and we like that. We hear that calling. We're convicted, and we're challenged, and we're ready. We want God to use us for his glory. We want God to use us for many people to come and know the Lord. And so I'm glad to be back. I'm glad to see you all, and I'm looking forward now for us hearing the word of God. In Mark chapter 12, where we are, I told you two weeks ago that they were coming at Jesus strongly. They're challenging him. His authority has been questioned. Um, At the end of chapter 11, they asked him where did he get the authority to do the things he's doing. He did not answer them. After that, they really began to come at them. He told a parable where the emphasis of the parable is of the people rejecting the tenants, rejecting the landowner's son. A smack in the face to them and their rejecting of God's son. Then from there, the Pharisees come challenging him over paying taxes. Do we pay to God or do we pay to Caesar? It's a good question. Jesus answered them in a masterful way. After that, last week, as Josh Womble preached, the Sadducees come at him. They ask him a question about the resurrection. Jesus rebukes them strongly. You neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. They were wrong. And now this week, we see a scribe coming at Jesus. Now, our passage today doesn't necessarily look like uh, a challenge of authority, but it's in the same uh, setting. It's in the same place. It's in the same scene. And this scribe is coming with a question, and it's a good one. And so we're going to learn from it. But when you look at all of it, you can see that there is uh, some concern there. So let's look at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love the Lord your, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So as you can see, it doesn't appear to be that this scribe is challenging him, but he is. The scribe is coming as if he has a higher authority or higher uh, awareness of the truth of the word of God than Jesus. It's almost as if he is challenging Jesus to see if Jesus knows what he's talking about. And as Jesus gives him a pretty good answer, he affirms, okay, your answer's pretty good. But if you look at the very next passage, verse 35, Jesus immediately begins to talk about the scribes. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? So he's dealing with something that the scribes teach, something that they believe. If 
you go on a little bit further in verse 38, look what Jesus says. And in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour, devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So in just these few verses that we're looking at, it doesn't appear that the scribe is coming at him in, in, in such a bad way, but, but he is. He's asking him a question. He doesn't, he doesn't come too strongly. He doesn't rebuke Jesus. But he's not surrendered to Jesus. And there's really only one way to come to God, and that is bowed down. And so I want you to see this with the scribes. I also want to remind you, because it has been a while, and I want you to flip back to chapter 1. I want you to flip back to chapter 1 of Mark, and I want to show you something. Mark chapter 1. Jesus begins his ministry in verse 14... After John the Baptist, and it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. There you have Jesus's main message, the heart of Jesus's message, and he begins his ministry with that message. Okay, right after that, he calls the disciples and in the very first passage, after Jesus has called the disciples, we have Jesus healing a man with an unclean spirit. Look at verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, look at verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Does everybody see that? Jesus' teaching was on another level than the scribes. Now, in Judaism, among the Jews, there was no higher teaching than the scribes. They were the experts, if you will, in the Old Testament. They were the experts in the law of God. They studied it. They knew it. And everybody else had to run their teaching or their understanding or their beliefs through the scribes. The scribes are the ones that you would check to see, is this right? Is this what it really says? You know how people always come with questions, hey, does the Bible say anything about this? Or what does the Bible say about this? Or what does it mean when the Bible says this? The scribes are the ones that everybody went to. But when Jesus came, And began teaching, not pointing to someone else's authority as every other teacher throughout the history of the world, including myself. As every other teacher has to do, we have to appeal to some other authority. In our case, and in the case of this church, may it only ever be that this is the authority of God. We have no other authority than this. The word of God is our authority, both for our church and for your life and for your home and for everything about you. This is the authority. And Jesus came as that authority. He is the word of God in the flesh. He is indeed God himself. And so when Jesus began teaching, their immediate observation, chapter 1, verse 22, is... He teaches like somebody we've never seen. He is the authority. He's a better teacher than the scribes. They noticed that right away. Now here we are, after three years of Jesus' ministry, 
and it's all coming to a climax, Jesus is now two days away from the Good Friday crucifixion. Jesus is two days away from losing his life. He's about to die, if you will. And so it is all coming together. They are coming against him. They are determined to get rid of him, to do away with him. They want to kill him. But they're trying to figure out how can they. They're hoping that they can find him wrong. They're hoping they can find him uh, doing something that is against God. Of course, they don't understand that he is God. So they're hoping to catch him. Remember, they've been trying to test him. For if they did that, it would be easy. He's wrong. He's blaspheming God. He's a fake. Let's do away with him. That would be easy. But they couldn't. But this is what they're trying. The Pharisees came. The Sadducees came. And now the scribes are coming. In our passage today, verse 28... One of the scribes came up to him. Let's walk through it. He heard them disputing with each other. He heard the conversation with the Pharisees. He heard the conversation with the Sadducees. He heard those people trying to trap Jesus. And he heard this authoritative teaching, this understanding of the truth of God. And he noticed that even the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, even the Sadducees, this sect of the Pharisees, leaders of the Jews, even they who knew what they believed, who led the Jews, could not get Jesus in a theological discussion. They couldn't trap him over biblical truth which you and I know so well. Amen. You cannot trap Jesus on the word of God. So now the scribe, who among all people, knows what he knows, knows what he believes. And he comes listening. And it says there in verse 28 that seeing that he answered them well, he had perceived that Jesus knew what he was talking about. He perceived that Jesus could take a challenge. He could see that Jesus was always ready to give a defense. So he asked him another question, a good one, a question that you and I have often asked ourselves, a question that you and I come back to regularly. Which commandment is the most important of all? I mean, this is a big book, right? And when it all gets down, when it all boils down, and when we get serious, I mean, what, what actually is the heart of it, right? I mean, there are Baptists, and right down the road there are Methodists, and right up the road there are Catholics, and, and there are all other religions, and there are some that we agree with, and some that we don't, and some that we kind of laugh at, and some that we're scared of, and there's everything in between. At the end of the day, what's the very heart of it? And this is the type of question that they are asking. They're asking it a little bit differently. They're very familiar with the Old Testament, and they are, they are experts in the, in the law of God. But they're asking that. This is a common question, right? This is what everybody's asking. People in our church ask this type of question. People in our community that don't go to church ask this question. People in your families ask this question. My first job waiting tables was at a nice, nice restaurant in downtown Greenville, South Carolina. I was in my last year of college at North Greenville, and I wanted to get a job, and I got hired at this place called Trio. It's right in downtown Greenville, such an awesome spot, right there on Main Street, and I loved it. I learned how to wait tables, and and God taught me how to be a server, and I had such a good time there. And 
I was on fire for God and wanting people to know the Lord, and I would carry in my back pocket, even while I waited tables, my pocket Bible. And anytime I had a chance to open it up and share with people, I would. And anytime uh, I had a break and, and, and had some free time, I would sit down, even on break at the restaurant, and pull my Bible out, and I would be reading. And I'll never forget, there was this really cool guy that worked with me. He was bigger than me, taller than me, sharp guy. Everybody liked him, and he worked there. And one day I was sitting down reading, and And he came by and he said, man, I don't want you to tell me a lot. But if you could tell me in a sentence or two, what's that book about? It's a good question, isn't it? That's how most people feel. Don't give me a sermon. Don't talk my ear off. Don't preach at me. In a sentence or two, what's that book about? What would you answer? Hard question, isn't it? Because you know if you just said one, you think, oh, I shouldn't have said that one. I just said this one. Why did I say that, right? I said, well, that's a good question, man. I'm glad you asked. I got one in mind. Remember, the Bible teaches us and we don't know what to answer. God will give us an answer, right? The Bible teaches us that. I said, there's one verse in John 14, 6 that says this. Jesus said to them that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that left out a lot, didn't it? That left out a lot. The truth is, you can't really sum up the Bible in one verse. He asked me an unfair question. God has challenged us as a church and called us as a church, rather, me as a pastor, to spend my whole life teaching you the whole counsel of God. You're not really a faithful Christian until you have submitted yourself to the whole word of God. Now, granted, none of us are ever going to be masters of it, and none of us are ever going to know it all, but the truth is is that God wants us to spend our lives knowing him and his truth. Even as Austin just prayed, God sanctifies us. That is, God makes us holy, makes us like himself through his word. And the deeper that we go in his word, and the more knowledgeable and understanding that we have of his word, the more God is growing us cannot limit it to just one verse. But those type of questions that my buddy asked me that day at Trio in the restaurant, that was 2002 in Greenville, South Carolina, those type of questions are the ones that people are always looking at. And the scribe now, understanding that Jesus is talking about, understanding that Jesus is talking about the Bible or, or, the, or the Old Testament well comes at him with a good question. This is not necessarily a trick question. This is a question that people are often asking. He wanted to see what Jesus' answer is. Now, I want to remind you that when we start talking about which commandment is the most important, that immediately puts us in position of, well, what does he mean? Because if you have never heard this passage then your first thought goes to the Ten Commandments, does it not? And the question is, which commandment is the greatest? If you didn't know what Jesus' answer is, then you would go to the Ten. Everybody does that. Just last night, I talked to my son Eli on FaceTime. And he said, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, I'm preaching on this passage where they asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is. He said, oh, I know what that is. There's ten. The first four have to do with God, and the next six have to do with man. That's a good answer. But it's the wrong answer. It's not right. But that's what a lot of people do. They go to the Ten Commandments. They try to figure out which one is the most important. Jesus' answer is not from the Ten Commandments. So why did he ask this question? Because there are a lot of commandments in the Old Testament. 
There are the ten that summarize all of them. But Jesus' answer here gives us two that summarizes the ten, that summarizes the whole Old Testament. But I want to give you a little bit of history about what it was like. The tradition of Jews and their teachers, the rabbis, they counted in totality in the first five books of the Bible, which is known as the law, 613 different commandments. Now you maybe only know the ten Maybe you know these two that he says here, but even at that, that's only 12. But they count 613. 365 of those are prohibitions, things you should not do. And 248 of those are positive commands, things that you should do. That's a lot, isn't it? Those are a lot of rules, and Jews and teachers of the Jews, rabbis, knew that there were 613. Well, obviously, if there are that many, you're not thinking about all 613 each and every day. So one would begin to ask, which are the more important ones? And they had two categories. They had the heavy ones, and they had the light ones. And this is, these are real categories. If you'll remember in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, if you break one of the least of my commandments. Do you remember that phrase? If you break one of the least of my commandments, which kind of gives us an idea that perhaps in Jesus' mind there were some that were more heavy than than there are light. Now notice that we're not going to say more important and less important. We're just talking about heavy and light. Both are important. All are important. And I also want to remind you of the conversation that we have sometimes of where people will say, are all sins equal? You've heard that one many times, right? Like is a little white lie as as, as, as equal as murder Right? Is committing adultery on the same level as stealing a piece of bubble gum from the gas station? The truth is that all sins are equal. They are. To sin against God in a big way or a small way, a light way or a heavy way, is still automatically, totally an offense against God. And one single one, big or small, light or heavy, will condemn you before God Almighty and will send you to hell For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin, any sin, is death. But where they become light and heavy is that, and common sense will teach you this, the effect, the consequence, the result of a sin can be greatly different, right? There are some sins that I could do that y'all would need to dismiss me from being pastor immediately. But there are some sins that I do even now that y'all forgive me of and encourage me to not do it anymore and press on. See, the consequence or the result of sin is often different in the world. But this conversation of so many commandments and differences in commands, light and heavy, would lead people to start asking, well, what's the very heart of it? Which ones are the main ones? What's the one that kind of summarizes all of them? And there are many different answers. Before Jesus, 20 years before, there was a rabbi named Hillel. And he summarized the whole Old Testament with a negative reversal of the golden rule. You know the golden rule. It's in Matthew 7. It says, you are to do unto others what you would have them do unto you, right? And he summarized that with a reversal. He says, what you would not want done to you, you should not do to your neighbor. This is the entire law. Everything else is an interpretation of this. That was 20 years before Jesus. 
a century after Jesus, in A.D. 135, Rabbi Akiba said this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That summarizes the entire word of God. A century after Akiba, a rabbi quoted Proverbs chapter 3, verse 6, summarizing the entire law with, In all your ways acknowledge God, and he will make straight your paths. And yet even later, in A.D. 260, Rabbi Simlai quoted Habakkuk 2.4 saying, The righteous will live by faith. See, it was common. It was very common for somebody to try to take this whole book and break it down to just one statement. You have favorite verses, do you not? You may have one verse in your memory, or you may have one verse hanging uh, in your house somewhere that you love to remember and recall and build your life and family around, but I don't think any of us have the entire uh, Old Testament law or the first five books of the Bible tattooed or printed out or on the wall or anything like that. It's just too much. It's, it's overwhelming at times, and so we want to bring it into perspective, and that's what's happening here. The scribe has now noticed that Jesus knows what he's talking about. This guy is a master of the word of God. He is a teacher of the word of God. You and I have noticed through the gospel of Mark and the ministry of Jesus that Jesus almost every time he talks is talking about the word of God. He is the word of God. He was knowledgeable of the word of God and he was always quoting the Old Testament word of God. And so he comes to Jesus back in Mark chapter 12 and he says, which commandment? is the most important of all. Jesus answered him, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. What an answer. Jesus, again, has answered a challenge, has answered a question in a way that only Jesus can do. The question is, which commandment? And it's a singular question. And Jesus gives two commandments and calls it a commandment. It's fascinating. We would never have done that. The question is, which commandment? In verse 28, Jesus gives two commandments from two different passages. They're not even in the same place. The first one is Deuteronomy 6. The second one is Leviticus 19. Two different places. Jesus quotes both of those. And in verse verse 31, he says, there is no other commandment greater than these. He puts them together, and that's good for us. We need to see that. Jesus has now taken the summary of the Word of God, the summary of the Old Testament law, He has made it about love. Church, we need to hear this. We must understand that God is about love. We must understand the power of love. We must understand that when God made his move, and when God sent his son into the world, it was driven by the great love of God. For God so loved the world. 1 John chapter 4, God is love. So the answer 
that Jesus gives is about you loving. It's about what you love. It's about who you love. And it's about how you love. It's brilliant. It's an answer that causes us to think about where our heart is, but it doesn't allow us to be the final say on where our heart is. It's an answer that causes us to evaluate where our heart is, but then also looks to see where our loving heart loves in the world. It's brilliant. Anybody can say they love, but what does your love look like? It's an answer that brings about both of those. His first is from Deuteronomy 6. It's the greatest commandment. It is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This passage in Deuteronomy 6 that Austin read in our scripture reading is known as the Shema. And Jews, listen to me, Jews would quote this passage twice a day Every single day of their lives. Let me read to you again what this passage says. This passage is so good that me and Val have this passage on the wall in our house. In Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today, they shall be on your heart. And any good Jew who understood this must be on your heart, understood that repetition and reminding and memory was a way to keep it on your heart. And so twice a day, every single day, they would recite this passage. It goes on to say, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. Perhaps a bracelet, perhaps a string that you will not forget. Some way, get this in your mind. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Do not lose sight of these, it says. Verse 9, you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That every single time you walk out the door, you're reminded of the great call that there is only one true God and you are to love him with everything. This is Jesus' answer. This is truly the greatest commandment. This is truly the heart and soul of which every single affection and every single action flows purely. Love God. He could have left it there, but he didn't. He went on. And he immediately rolled into the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a good verse. And we know, because we have heard it so many times, that the world wants to see proof. The world wants to see actions. Don't tell me, show me. Don't talk about it be about it. Don't talk to talk, walk to walk. We hear this all the time, and we know this to be true. Actions speak louder than words, and this is what Jesus is getting at when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. For the true child of God, for the true believer of God, for the true worshiper of God is one who deeply and most most importantly, most affectionately loves God, and because of that love for God, flows out of them a love for anybody they would encounter. These two go together. Jesus says these two are the greatest. There is no other commandment greater than these. J.C. Ryle, speaking on this, says, We are not merely to obey the one or abstain from injuring the other. In both cases, we are to give far more than this. 
We are to give love, the strongest of all affections, and the most comprehensive. A rule like this, listen to this, a rule like this includes everything. It makes all petty details unnecessary. Nothing will be intentionally lacking where there is love. And as I was studying this, I was reminded of all good mothers, right? There's not a single thing a mom won't do for her kids. The biggest, the smallest, the easiest, the hardest, the ugliest, the dirtiest. Moms will do it without blinking an eye or missing a beat. Why? Because they love their kids. And it's what the calling is. J.C. Ryle brings this about when speaking of the child of God. Nothing is unnecessary. Nothing will be intentionally lacking where there is love. He goes on to say, happy is that man, and I love this quote, happy is that man who strives to frame his life according to these two rules. Love God with everything that's in you and love people as well. Happy is the man who has framed his life on those two rules. That's Jesus' answer. That is what Jesus says is the most important commandment in the Old Testament law. Did you know that? Had you heard that before? The next time anybody brings it up, don't quote the Ten Commandments. Don't don't go there. Understand the Ten Commandments are now a breakdown of these two things. Remember the Ten Commandments, as Eli answered on the phone, can be broken up into two little categories. The first four commandments are about our relationship with God. And the last six commandments are about our relationship with people. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Many have often said, in an even briefer summary of the law, love God, love people. And this is Jesus' answer. Now let's look back to the word of God in Mark chapter 12, verse 32. But the scribe answers him now. And look what he says. You are right, teacher. You see what I mean by the scribes thinking that they were authority? He asked him as if, this guy sounds to really know what he's talking about. Let me see. Which one's the most important? Jesus gives him that awesome answer, that profound answer. He takes two passages from two different books. He brings them together and says, this is the greatest commandment. And his answer is, good job. You're right. Well said. You know what you're talking about to Jesus, to which us, in hindsight, find this almost laughable, right? The scribe is trying to get himself above Jesus to say, hey, man, you know what you're talking about. I'm, I'm proud of you. Keep it up. When in reality, the Lord Jesus is infinitely above the scribe and does not need his approval on what the word of God is about. But the scribe doesn't know this. So he says to him, you are right, teacher, for you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all her whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And now we understand something about the scribe. We understand that this scribe was going in the right direction. This scribe really did know somewhat of what he was talking about. This scribe really did know the two passages that Jesus had quoted. This scribe is not coming at Jesus with so much of a bad attitude as the Pharisees and the Sadducees had, as many of the other scribes had. 
Now, I began by pointing out in verse 35 that Jesus is rebuking the scribes. I began by showing you in verse 38 that Jesus is warning against the scribes. I began with Mark 1.22 where the scribes were in all of Jesus and they knew that he was greater than them. And I want to point out yet again that this is one single scribe who has now come to Jesus and who does have a lot of understanding. Not only did he know those two passages, not only was he able to affirm back to Jesus, yes, there is only one God. There is only one God worth worshiping. And these passages show us what it looks like to truly have your heart set upon him in worship. It is him that you love with everything that is in you, and that carries over into the way you treat all people. For there is no way to love God and not be concerned about people. And there is no way to truly be concerned about people without a love for God. Both will fall short. And the scribe seemed to know this, or at least he says he did. But the scribe goes a little bit further. And he says that these two commandments, the loving of God and of neighbor, are much more, please notice this in verse 33, are much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And I went back and forth for a while on trying to decide if I should just preach this passage as I'm doing now or if I should try to come up with points. Obviously, I didn't do the point way. But if I had, I was wanting to keep it simple and say this. God's heart as compared to man's heart. Folks, your heart and my heart and everybody who we know's heart is dispositionally set on what we can do, on what we can earn, on what our works are, on how good we are or bad we are. Every single one of us and everybody you know. It is only by the grace of God, the saving grace of God, entering inside of you that you will abandon that sort of merit-gathering earning, being good enough mindset and cast yourself fully upon Jesus as Savior. It is only by the grace of God that you will truly believe nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. The heart of God is that he wants us to love us, knowing that we can't really do anything for him. The heart of God, as expressed in the greatest commandment, is that you and I would be so content at loving the God that first loved us. That is truly the heart of God. The heart of God is for us to be able to rest with joy and rest with contentment and rest with happiness, that we would be satisfied to the depths of our soul with the truth that God loves us and that he has made us his, and so we just love him back. The heart of God is that we would know his love and therefore react back to him with love for him. That is the heart of God, nothing more and nothing less. The heart of man is far from that. The heart of man is always and continually looking to see, have I done enough? It is always wanting to pat ourselves on the back like I'm pretty good. It's why the conversation sometimes at church and the conversation almost always outside of church is, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Just two, na- two days ago, 
We were way south in Ecuador at the edge of the jungle in a little place called Chichico Rumi. It literally means pocket monkey rock. Chichico Rumi, pocket monkey rock. There's a new church there. The town Chichico Rumi only has 176 people in it, and they're mostly all family. The church now has 32 adults and like a ton of kids. But 32 adults in the church. And we went there, we did a little worship service, and I got to preach. And after that, as we were leaving, they took us down, and we all loaded up in canoes, and we went up the river away before we got back to our bus and left. And as we were leaving, a man walked up, middle-aged man, who was not at the church. And he introduced himself to me, and he told me that he was the new chief of their village. I didn't know if he really was the chief, because he was uh, in his late 40s. But he told me how many children he had and how many grandchildren he had. And he, he seemed to carry himself like a chief. And everybody did listen to him like he was the chief. Perhaps he was just becoming the chief. The pastor of the church was there. And he didn't, he didn't tell me that that guy wasn't the chief. But he said he was the chief. It was awesome. He took me around. He showed me some things. He gave me a nice gift, a little hand-carved hand thing that he said could go uh, in my office. It was, it was pretty cool. As we were about to leave, he was showing us around. And Joe asked me, are there really tarantulas in Ecuador? There are tarantulas everywhere in Ecuador. Big Louisville Zoo type tarantulas everywhere in Ecuador. And Joe asked, are there really tarantulas in Ecuador? And so I turned to this chief. I said, are there tarantulas here? He's like, yeah, there's one right there and there's one right there. He's just pointing to all the corners of all the buildings that we're in. There's one right there. And he just took Joe all around showing Joe tarantulas everywhere. It was funny. We got all the way down to the the water and we were about to go and When I get in Ecuador, my Spanish picks up a little bit, and I do a little bit better than I do here, but I'm not very good at speaking Spanish. I want to be. But I knew that we were leaving. I said to him, are you a Christian? He's the chief, right? So often, as a chief goes, community goes. I said, are you a Christian? He said, my family is. They go to that church. He said, I'm trying, trying to be the best man I can. I'm working all the time. I'm trying to take care of my family. And in my heart, I've got my beliefs. I said, but you're not a Christian. He said, no. Y'all, that is how we all are, apart from the saving grace of God. That's how we all are. Your family members that do not worship Jesus as Lord, that's how they feel about themselves. The people down the street, that's how they feel about themselves. I'm trying to be the best person I can. I've got a decent gauge of right and wrong. I realize that morality is a real thing in the world. But. Unless. Jesus died for your sins. And his blood shed on the cross was because of your singular sins, your sins. And unless you have bowed your knee and confessed with your mouth, God, forgive me of my sins, not because of anything in me, but all because of him. You don't know God. You're not a child of God. You won't go to heaven. There is no way to get there 
unless you love God. And you will not love God naturally. You cannot love God naturally. Your heart will pat you on the back and talk about how you want to love God and you're trying to love God and you know of Him and you respect Him and all this and all that. You know this phrase, a God-fearing man? God-fearing man in the Bible of people who feared God but didn't believe. A God-fearing man in the Bible is not a saved person. A God-fearing man in the Bible is somebody who's a good guy that realizes that there's right and wrong and that God's got some rules and there is a maker. But it will not save you. Until you repent of your sins and believe that Jesus died for your sins and that that's your only hope, the love of God saving you, then you don't really love God. You may love him a little, but you don't love him most. The saying all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and all your body is so huge, it's so comprehensive, it's so consuming. To love God halfly or partly or lightheartedly is not truly loving God. And this is at the very heart of Jesus' answer. The scribe answers back and says, much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. What he means by that is that much more important than anything you do is what do you love? Do you love God? Jesus says this is the summary of the whole Old Testament. And he's right. Listen to these few other passages as we come to an end. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, listen to this, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen to God better than the fat of rams. Hosea 6, 6. For I desire love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? What is required by God? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Perhaps you remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, that great exposition there on love. In 1 Corinthians 13, 3, Paul says, If I give away everything I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I do not love, I gain nothing. There is no giving. 99% of all your income into the millions that earns you a second before the presence of a holy God. There is no sacrifice even to the point of death that earns you even an ounce of the mercy of God. 
It is only by the work of Jesus who loved himself for us and gave himself for us. The only response to God that worships him is the response where the heart loves him most. Commentator Edward says that one draws near to the kingdom of God not by proper theology, but by drawing near to Jesus. He says this because look what Jesus says next. Mark chapter 12, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, it was a good answer, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now you have to know your Bible, and you have to know the Lord Jesus to know what Jesus means. This man has said a lot. This scribe knows the Old Testament. This scribe knows a lot about the heart of God. That the heart of God desires our love and our uh, 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 act of faith. He, 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 he desires that more than he does sacrifice. But he doesn't know that we get that heart through the salvation of Jesus. He's close. He's close. Folks, you need to understand that close only works in horseshoes and hand grenades. Close doesn't work with the kingdom of God. Because you're here today, because you love this church, it's not going to get you there. It's not going to get you there. You have to love God. Our passage ends with an awesome statement. It says, after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The Pharisees were silenced. The Sadducees were rebuked. And the scribe who was the authority of the word of God had just met his match. He affirmed Jesus' beautiful answer and Jesus says, good job. You're close. I want to ask you today, are you close or are you there? Are you there? Is your heart bowed down to the king right now? Are you close? Are you close? Are you there? What do you love most? You love most deep down when nobody's around with all of your possessions, with all of your skills, with all of your gifts, with all of your heart. Does your heart's deep desire overflow love for God? Did Jesus die for your sins and oh, you know it? Do you need forgiveness so badly and you know that God provides it? Do you know that? Is that you or are you close? See, there's a thin line, isn't there, between there and close. And since Jesus says that he is near to the kingdom of God or not far from the kingdom of God, it raises the issue that there are a lot of people that perhaps may seem like they are on their way to heaven, but they, quite frankly, aren't. We don't know on this guy. We never hear anything else about him. Did he ultimately love God or did he not? 
When we were in Ecuador, there was a girl there working. She was from the coast. I think she was around 19 or 20. She was there working because she was bilingual now. She speaks English and Spanish, and so she was a big, big help to the ministry. But she was new. I had never seen her before. The missionary Steve was just getting to know her too. He was telling me this story. The missionary Steve, listen to me, had been there 30 years. And in his first five or six years, they had found this young man that they were investing in, and he was a part of the church. And when he got into his 20s, he seemed to fall away. His name was Gorky. Gorky. I've never heard that name before, but his name was Gorky. And they invested in him. They were discipling him. He was a part of the church. Everybody knew him. Everybody loved this guy. But when he got into his mid-20s, like often happens, he fell away. The things of the world just became more uh, important to him, and he kind of lost his way, and he fell away, and they never heard from him again. They tried, and they tried to reach out to him, and for a while, they kept contact, and they kept trying to call him back, but nothing ever happened with it, and eventually, he was gone and never to be heard of again. Y'all know people like that. That was in their first, fifth or first five or six years. They've been there 30 years now. So it's been 25 years since they have heard or heard anything from Gorky. They still have never heard anything from him. But this girl shows up at camp. She's got a heart for ministry. She's 20 years old. She speaks English and Spanish. And Steve said he was getting to know her. And she's from Guayaquil, which is far away. It's the coast. They don't know many people from there. And he starts talking to her and he says, so what church are you a part of? And she says, and Steve didn't really have any connections there. And he said, what are your parents' names? She says, my dad's name's Gorky. Steve said, Gorky. He laughed at me and he said, I've never in my life heard the name Gorky before. Surely. He said, tell me more about your dad. So she goes on and on. You know what? That's her dad. He said, your dad is that Gorky? She said, why do you know him? He said, tell me more about him. Do you know his testimony? Listen to what she said. My dad grew up in the church, loved the Lord Jesus. When he got into his mid-20s, he fell away. Two years ago, God brought him back, and he's been discipling me ever since. Some people are close, and some people are in it. Church, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? Do you know that the sum of all this isn't isn't pews and the way you dress. It's not how much you've given or not given. It's not how many times you come to Sunday school. It's not that. It's deep down in your heart. Do you love God and you know that he's your father in heaven and apart from him you have no hope? Do you love God because in his great love for you he sent Jesus to die? That's the summary of it all. May today you evaluate whether you're close or whether you're in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for a passage that just makes clear the questions that we have. What is most important of all the word of God? And thank you, God, that Jesus truly is the greatest teacher He teaches unlike anybody else. And God, thank you that you've given us your word so that we can learn from his teaching. Oh, Father, convict us in our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. If you're here today and you want to make sure that you are loving God most, now is the time to respond. If you've never believed in Jesus and you want to do that today, come do it. Commit yourself to Christ. Respond to the great love of God. Perhaps you're here today, a man or a woman, and you know in your heart that you're close, but you're not there. Would you today make a commitment to Jesus?